I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Making a commitment to fight climate change and its consequences can mean opening yourself up to a years-long grind full of stops and starts, ups and downs, victories and bitter defeats. Today, we hear from veterans about the kind of dedication it takes and what lessons they offer others who may only just be starting out. There's Severn Cullis Suzuki, who first commanded the world's attention three decades ago when she was just 12 years old. And then there's her dad, David, bearing the scars and sharing the wisdom of a battle he's waged for longer than that. But we start with Ingrid Waldron. She's been toiling for a long time to have Ottawa bring in a new law to try to end environmental racism and injustice. Waldron is celebrating a win, but she's got some interesting things to say about the behind-the-scenes conversations with lawmakers. Now, there is one thing Ottawa has decided to do, bring in a new carbon offset scheme. It's important stuff, but not easy to digest. So let's try it in small bites. That should whet your appetite. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Climate change hits communities of color harder than others. In the United States, the Biden administration has just created an environmental justice office to tackle that problem. But on this side of the border, it's not quite the same situation. Take Bill C-226, for example. It's meant to tackle environmental racism. Just ahead of the House rising in Ottawa for the summer, MPs voted on whether to advance the bill to its next stage. Yes, pour 177, 177. Yes, 146, 146. All right, the bill did pass, but it's a long way from becoming law. At every step, Ingrid Waldron has been there, paying careful attention, tweeting, watching, and hoping it will pass. She's a professor in the Global Peace and Social Justice Program at McMaster University and the co-founder of the Canadian Coalition for Environmental and Climate Justice. And we caught up with her right after the vote. Hi there. So the vote passed. What does it feel like to have it get past second reading? Well, I'm extremely elated. I can't believe it. It was something that uh, perhaps I assumed might happen just in terms of conversations I've been having. But um, this has been so great to hear. And uh, it gives me hope that it's going to go all the way, hopefully, to law. But as you mentioned, there are a lot of steps for it to go through before then. So I'm just going to see what I can do on my end uh, to support the bill and to get more people to support it. Well, let's talk about the bill itself. For people less familiar with it, what does it seek to do? 
Well, Bill C226 is um, kind of groundbreaking in terms of the other bills that have been put forward on environmental racism that I was a part of. One of the major things that we're asking uh, the Minister of Environment to do is to collect disaggregated data based on race, socioeconomic status, and environmental risk. And we're hearing a lot about disaggregated race-based data these days, particularly due to COVID, uh, when we discovered that COVID was disproportionately impacting you know, South Asian communities and Black communities. People started talking about, we need to collect data, data based on race. So uh, this bill, I would say the major kind of factor in this bill is, is asking the government to collect that disaggregated statistical uh, data that's based on you know, race, income, socioeconomic status, and the risks to people's health as well. The other thing that is asking the minister to do is to collect data specifically on health risks, because if we think about the different types of uh, hazardous material in dumps and landfills, incinerators, et cetera, they pose risk to people's uh, health and well-being and also to their mental health. So for me as a health researcher, uh, collecting you know, statistics on the health risk is really, really key. Another thing that it's doing, it's going to address the administration and enforcement of environmental laws in each province. And also important is compensation for communities in the past that have been impacted by environmental degradation, environmental racism. So giving compensation or reparations, if you will, uh, to communities that have been impacted. When you talk about the scrutiny of data, how would that help address environmental racism? Uh, because when you don't have data, specifically statistical data, then it's very difficult to address an issue. If you don't know what's happening, then it's difficult to find solutions to it. So we do have the stories. We have the narratives. You know, I, I and others uh, for the past perhaps 30 years, in some cases, have done the qualitative work, speaking with community members, having them share their stories. That work is there in Canada for at least 20 years. But we also need the statistical quantitative data that the federal government should be doing as it's doing now with respect to COVID uh, so that we can find out more about the underlying factors that allow environmental racism to manifest. So that's statistical data along with the stories and the narratives that communities have shared for over 20 years is really key. I wonder if you could, for, for listeners who might not be as familiar with the term Talk about what environmental racism is and give us one of those qualitative examples that you have. Sure. Environmental racism, I mean, there are several kind of principles to environmental racism. I usually focus on, on one because it's the most descriptive. And I would say that it's about racism, racism in the disproportionate location and greater exposure of Indigenous, Black and other racialized communities to contamination and pollution specifically from polluting industries and other environmental hazards. So it's this notion that racialized communities who are also, in many cases, low income, who also live often in isolated or out of the way places such as on reserves or in the case of some black communities, particularly those in Nova Scotia, living in isolated rural areas, those are the communities that tend to be selected uh, for the placement of environmental burdens by government. It doesn't just happen, it happens through policy, just like any other form of racism. When we talk about employment uh, discrimination, we talk about discrimination in immigration, we talk about 
discrimination in the health system. It's always an outcome of policy. So similarly, environmental racism and what we see on the ground is a result of decision-making uh, by government where they decide to put a polluting industry, for example. And when I think of a qualitative case, I think of Pictuland and First Nation in Nova Scotia that has or did uh, have to deal for over 60 years with a contaminated site in their community that was finally closed in 2020. I think about Amjinwang First Nation near Sarnia, Ontario, which is often referred to as Chemical Valley, and they have over 60 petrochemical facilities surrounding their community. So those are two kind of very well-known cases of environmental racism in Canada, where we have the stories, we have the qualitative data. Okay, now this isn't the first time this legislation, this kind of legislation has been before Parliament. The bill that you co-wrote died on the order paper when the last federal election was called. How different is this bill from what you had written? This bill is actually the exact same bill after it was approved at amendments. So the bill that uh, was put forward uh, by Lenore that we co-wrote. Now, I should say Lenore, Lenore is Lenore Zahn, who was an MP in the previous parliament and is no longer in parliament. That's right. You know, she came to me uh, just before COVID hit February of 2020. And she said, let's take that 2015 bill we did in Nova Scotia and let's turn it into a federal bill. It did go to second reading and to amendments. And some minor changes uh, were made at amendments. It was approved. So the bill that you see now, which is Bill C-226, is the exact same bill that was amended in the spring of 2021. You've been pushing government to pass the bill quickly, but that hasn't happened. Why has the process been slow? We've been looking for unanimous consent, and we would like to see the bill expedited and not to have to go through all of the stages that Bill C-230 did, because it doesn't really seem to make any sense. You know, if it was approved at amendments and it was approved at uh, second reading before amendments, then our argument is why, sh why should it go through all of the same steps? And what's the right? answer you're getting? <laughs> we're not getting any answer, but what we're getting is pushback from you know, certain political parties who now don't want to support the bill when they did support the bill last year, which I find very strange. So the pushback is, I'm hearing a lot of things, didn't like the name, uh, don't like the, the notion that racism is in the title of the bill. Um, so, you know, at amendments that environmental justice was added, you know, just to, you know, in a way appease certain people, you know, so we have both environmental racism in the title of the bill, as well as environmental justice. Um, somebody was talking about changing it to environmental discrimination. It's all of these kind of nitpicky stuff around racism. And I think just not feeling comfortable with the bill, but I actually think it speaks to just a larger issue. I think the nitpicking isn't really about the name, to be honest with you. I think people are just getting perhaps a little threatened by the fact that the bill is progressing and maybe it's getting a little bit more attention in the public. I, I find it very strange, to be honest with you, that um, it was approved by various parties and then certain parties are not supporting it now. Uh, when, it's, when it's the exact same bill. So, yeah. yeah, I can hear that in your voice. It, what I, It must be frustrating for you to, to, to come up against this. Yeah, I don't understand it, but I, I guess that's the way politics works. It's, it's, it seems to me that people are trying to find different reasons 
for this bill not to go ahead. And I think, you know, many people have stated it in the House of Commons and, and beyond saying that in Canada, we are really uncomfortable with, with racism, with the word racism or admitting to it. So just the fact that we've been asked to include environmental justice in the title speaks to that. I have no issues with that. I think the bill, you know, it, it should have environmental justice in it because that's what we're trying to achieve, right? Justice. But environmental racism speaks to the fact that we also need to identify the kind of multi-causal factors for environmental racism. I always say to people, it's like when you go to your doctor, you want a diagnosis before you take the medication. You want your doctor to sit down with you and tell you what's wrong and give you a diagnosis, and then you will take the medication. Similarly, we can't figure out how to achieve environmental justice without looking at the multi-causal factors that contribute to environmental racism. So you need to have both. So I don't have any issues with environmental justice being the title, but from what I'm kind of getting in the past few months is that there's a lot of nitpicking going on uh, because people don't want to see the bill uh, advanced. And I, 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 I don't really know what to make of it. Is that exclusively coming from the opposition benches? I think in particular, we're talking about the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois. Yes. <laughs> okay. So what does that tell you then about where this issue lands on those parties' list of priorities? Uh, it doesn't. I think for the Bloc Québécois, I think it does. They do believe that it's an important issue, but they articulate it as an issue of social class, which is problematic. It is an issue of class, but it's also an issue of race. But I think their argument is, and you know, fair argument, their argument is if we focus on environmental racism and indigenous and racialized communities, what about the communities that are not racialized who still have to deal with environmental injustices? So the low income working class white person who may also be bearing the brunt of environmental hazards. So it's an economic argument saying that they don't want to leave anybody out. At the same time, environmental racism is about disproportionality. Certainly when you address the concerns, the environmental concerns of communities of color who are disproportionately impacted, you will also address the concerns of the low-income working class white person, right? Um, In the definition of environmental racism, it says that it impacts racialized communities as well as the working poor. And that certainly could include low-income white people. So I think when we address the concerns of people who are most vulnerable, the people who are less vulnerable are also served. We have that saying, women and children first. And basically what that says is the people who are most vulnerable, women and children, uh, we should address their concerns first because they're the most vulnerable. Um, We will capture other people when we deal with the most vulnerable. So I think the concerns that the white low-income person will not be served by this bill, it's it's an erroneous kind of idea, uh, because they will be. But we also have to deal with people who have been dealing with this uh, for, in many cases, over 70 years, as is the case with the Black community in Shelburne. We've we've got to kind of prioritize people who have been most impacted. And I think we do that first. All right. So I'm not sure if you have been popping champagne corks over, over this second reading victory. But as you said at the beginning of our conversation, there's still a ways to go. How hopeful are you at this point that the bill will actually become law? I'm always hopeful. I mean, even when, you know, things didn't turn out well, because um, why am I hopeful? I think I think the bill is gaining traction because I think people are more aware of environmental racism, more events taking place on it, more 
presentations. I, I, over the past two years, um, there's been such an increase in, for me, invitations to present on this topic by everyone, by professors who I don't think had an interest before, by everyone. So I think as more people become acquainted with the term, understand the issue, they empathize with the issue. I think government will respond to an issue if they think that members of the public care, right? Because I think this bill has kind of been prominent in many ways in the media and people are learning more about it. Uh, People then are becoming much more concerned the government often wants to take these concerns to heart. You know, uh, they, they want to, in many cases, respond to their constituents. For me, that, that suggests to me that the bill will pass. And maybe in the next year or two years, I'm not sure how long it takes, but I'm extremely hopeful because of the work that has gone on to advance this bill in many ways, uh, you know, beyond Parliament, with all the groups and activists, advocates who've been working on this particular issue for years. Uh, Perhaps this is a bit unfair, but what will you do if it doesn't become law? Well, there is another option that I'm looking at with my co-founder of the Canadian Coalition for Climate and Environmental Justice. There is a government bill, you know, that has been discussed by the Minister of Environment. I believe it's in his mandate letter. The mandate letter that he received from the prime minister in October of last year talks about uh, a government bill. And we've spoken to members, people in his office about this bill. We wanted to kind of support both bills at the same time, but we thought we would just focus on bill C226 first. But that is actually, that has been our plan to see whether or not we can jumpstart a government bill. For some people, this government bill may be more foolproof I'm not sure because it's a government bill, it's coming from the Liberal Party. Uh, So I would like to explore that, actually, and also continue in any way that I can to support Bill C-226. Well, first things first, (laughs) we'll keep tracking this one and uh, perhaps we'll talk to you again when it eventually becomes law. Ingrid Waldron, thank you. Thanks for having me again. Carbon offsets. Stay with me. It's a phrase that can make you think of planting trees to counter emissions from your holiday flight or your business trip, or maybe just trying to even understand it gives you a headache. But I'm going to give it a try. There is another kind of carbon offset, and as part of the federal government's plan to reduce emissions, Ottawa rolled out new details earlier this month, and it is a bit complicated and environmental advocates have concerns. So, to break it all down, we got Nicholas Rivers on the line. And believe me, it wasn't easy. Hello. Nick, we are still connected, and I'm not, I can't hear you. I'm not sure what's happened. 
Um, did you mute your microphone I, by? I'm it? here still, no oh, problem. I wonder what happened. Yeah, I could hear you the whole time. I actually, yeah, I don't know. Oh, the strangeness of technology. <laughs> okay, let's bear with it and just keep going here and see how we do. So if I could just get you to introduce yourself um, just as a start, we may use that when we put the show together. Sure. I'm Nicholas Rivers, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. I study climate change policy and climate change economics. Okay, the key words there are economics and policy. Rivers actually understands how this new offsets program fits into the government's thinking on carbon pricing. So if you're a steel plant or a big chemicals factory or a cement plant, you're required to reduce your emissions to a certain intensity. So you can either reduce your emissions to hit the target, or there are some you know, workarounds if you find it expensive or difficult to hit the target. Uh, you can pay the federal government a fee, a carbon tax, essentially. Or as of this month, you can pay for an offset credit bought from someone else's carbon sink, such as a forest. So what's key here is that offsets aren't new emissions cuts. River says instead it allows companies to balance their carbon books, so to speak. And Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change says there are other benefits. The system gives foresters, farmers, Indigenous communities, municipalities and others an opportunity to earn revenues by cutting pollution. It gives companies an opportunity to create good, sustainable jobs. That's Stephen Gilbo speaking earlier this month. And his department is making different rules for different kinds of offsets one by one. This month, it released rules specifically targeting landfills. Yeah, I know. Why landfills? Well, some Canadian landfills do actually capture the methane produced by decomposing trash. But Nicholas Rivers says this new program is a little push for the rest to get on board. For the remaining landfills in Canada that haven't already done this, this protocol is basically giving them an incentive to capture those nasty landfill gases that are coming out and to destroy them. And to give them an incentive to do that, the government said, well, we're going to give you an offset credit every time you can prove to us that you've destroyed some landfill gas that would otherwise have escaped to the atmosphere. The landfill can then sell that credit to a company to help meet its target. But Rivers says while you can measure emissions, measuring emissions reductions on the part of a landfill or a forest, that is not so simple. I can't guarantee that someone has reduced a ton of emissions because there's no device I have that can measure reductions of emissions. I can measure actual emissions, but I can't measure emissions reductions. To do that, I need to compare actual emissions, which I can measure, with a hypothetical situation, which is what this company or entity would have done if they didn't have the offset credit. And I can never observe that. Another thing Rivers is worried about is something called additionality. So this is the case where if a project proponent is granted an offset credit for something that they maybe would have done anyway. In that case, the offset credit, it's hard to justify that it's really uh, generating new emission reductions. Rivers says examples are planting trees or sequestering carbon in soil. That can bring big benefits to communities, but they might happen anyway without the lure of a carbon offset credit. Another problem, Rivers says, is that the law of supply and demand might undo the offset. For example, if one person preserves a forest on their land and earns a credit, that could limit the supply of lumber and push up prices, which might lead another person to capitalize on the demand and cut down trees on their land. Finally, Rivers is concerned about something called permanence. As you might guess, that means the offsets might not exist in a few years. 
So we've seen around North America and the world in the last few years, really um, unprecedented forest fires. So if someone has put away a parcel of land and said, we're going to store carbon here, they can't guarantee that that land's not going to burn or be infested by a bug. And, and in many cases, these offset credits are granted for long-term carbon sequestration. And it's really difficult to be certain over the long term how long that carbon's actually going to stick in the forest floor. River says the government knows about the concerns around offset credits and it is trying to design rules that address them. When it comes to the landfill credit that Ottawa is pushing ahead on, Rivers thinks the real measure of success is yet to come. You know, I think that it's done a reasonably good job in the case of this landfill gas protocol, although time will tell. We haven't seen an awful lot of landfill gas capture projects adopted in the last 10 years, which suggests that there isn't a real impetus towards doing these without this kind of offset credit. But there's still one thing I was wondering. Why not just force municipalities and private owners to capture methane? Rivers says that kind of regulation could be a successful strategy. The government is staying the course, though. In fact, it's doubling down, with its next credit likely aimed at direct air capture. That means sucking CO2 directly out of the air and burying it underground. It is a new technology, and experts say it's not performing well yet. So River says it's not likely to generate many credits to start. But this time he doesn't see any problem with offering those offset credits. Direct air capture is not something people are doing anyway. There's no real benefit to anyone from doing direct air capture except to address greenhouse gas emissions. And I don't have concerns about you know lack of permanence in that case. And so I would see that as being kind of the ideal offset protocol to develop. What isn't ideal, says Rivers, is offering offsets for forestry and soil. He says while storing carbon in forests and soil is important, governments shouldn't tie it to carbon pricing. Because, as he said earlier, it's impossible to measure how much carbon is stored and for how long. And it could even end up increasing Canada's emissions. You know, if the offset credit isn't perfect, it means that other firms are going to be allowed to increase their emissions and offset them with you know, non-perfect, not 100% emission reduction. So it'll result in a net increase in emissions. So again, offsets don't actually reduce emissions. They're just supposed to balance them out. Given the timelines Canada has set for 2030 and 2050, do we really have time for the balancing act? I think we're balancing, you know, two things here as we try to pursue significant emission reductions in the next decade, especially. We want to cut emissions really fast, but we also don't want to overburden the economy, right? It's going to be costly to cut emissions in some sectors. And so there is a viable spot for some of these like price type mechanisms and hopefully smoothing out the cost and lowering the costs of transitioning to net zero. But I really do think that the end game here is not an end game where we have offset credits. In the longer term, we want to be turning towards regulatory mechanisms to get to net zero. And as Canada strives for net zero, we'll be watching to see whether the government heeds that warning. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. 
It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. You are listening to What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. You can listen on demand at CBC Listen or subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. Now, just a few weeks ago, I talked to Christopher Harley on the beach in Vancouver. That's where you're hearing those waves coming from. He's a marine ecologist at UBC. And we spoke about the damage done to West Coast sea life by last year's heat dome. And it was depressing. Like everywhere we walked, it was just more and more dead mussels and dead sea stars and dead crabs. And and over the subsequent days, I visited more and more sites and it was more and more depressing. It's like, oh shoot, the first sites that I went to weren't the worst. There were places that were way worse off than that. And recognizing the full scope of that event was very sobering. And a quick update, a study Harley co-authored was released just a few days ago. It suggests far-reaching consequences to the ecology of beaches, deltas, and more in the region. And it provides a basis for further research into how heat affects sea populations and what can be done to better protect them. You can read more about Christopher Harley's study in the What on Earth newsletter. And if you aren't subscribed, you can sign up at cbc.ca slash whatonearth. It's a great read every week, and it comes right to your email inbox. Cast your mind back now to June of 1992, 30 years ago this month. Hundreds have gathered for the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. A young girl rises from her seat and walks toward a tall podium. To her left sits a panel of the world's most prominent leaders. Behind her sit three of her friends. She shuffles her papers before shocking everyone into silence with her words. I used to go fishing in Vancouver, my home, with my dad, until just a few years ago we found the fish full of cancers. And now we hear of animals and plants going extinct every day vanishing forever. In my life, I have dreamt of seeing the great herds of wild animals, jungles and rainforests full of birds and butterflies. But now I wonder if they will even exist for my children to see. Severn Kulis Suzuki then reminds world leaders of values they know all too well, values they learned at a young age, values they now seem to have abandoned. At school, Even in kindergarten, you teach us how to behave in the world. You teach us to not to fight with others, to work things out, to respect others, to clean up our mess, not to hurt other creatures, to share, not be greedy. Then why do you go out and do the things you tell us not to do? Do not forget why you are attending these conferences. Who you're doing this for? We are your own children. She now has her own children. And you know her father, of course, scientist, broadcaster, environmental activist David Suzuki. Just a few days ago, the Canadian Journalism Foundation honoured him for his commitment to informing people about the climate crisis. So what better moment to invite both Severn and David to join us? Hi, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Hello, thanks for having us. 
Severin, what do you think about when you hear that speech? Well, I can remember that day so clearly, even though it was so long ago. It was uh, definitely uh, a pivotal moment. It was a moment that um, was when opportunity met preparation. I'd worked with my my club, the Echo Club, for a year to fundraise and work towards that moment. And so I remember just a very clear sense of purpose. I knew what I was there to do. Um, and it and it brings me back. The fact that it was videotaped, it was recorded, and that later when we got back to Canada, it was the six-minute clip was sent um, to me, and then my family helped me make copies of it, and then we sent it all over the world. Um, we, we kept on doing that for literally a decade before the internet went public and then it got uploaded. And it, so it's experienced this life of its own and every few years it surfaces and people want to talk about it. So I find that really fascinating, how it really has, has persisted as its own piece um, all these years. Well, the sad thing though is that of course it's every bit as relevant, it's bang on still 30 years later. David, when you listened to that, you were there in the mm. room. What what flashes back well, in I your just, mind? Well, I just that remember moment? how frantic it was, and when she was invited, and I said, "Sev, okay, now here's what you got to say." And she said, "Dad, I know what I want to say. I want you to help me say it right after I'm finished." But if you saw the page that she was reading from, there was little writing in the margin, and I was just concerned about the, whether she'd be able to get it th- get through it without stumbling. So it was just. When it was over, I was just shocked that <laughs> not only did she pull it off, but that how powerful it was. It was. It had a real impact on the people in the room, and as you said, Severin, beyond. I, but I'd like to hear you describe what impact you think the speech has had. Well, I wanted to say, you know, um, now there's Greta, um, and people are saying, oh, you were you were the first Greta. I, I mean, I was not the only one. There was all kinds of youth activists at the Earth Summit. And, you know, I was there with my friends. They had been giving speeches alongside me for the two weeks of the Earth Summit. So I just wanted to remind everyone that youth are always at the front lines of any revolution. And that is true for the environmental movement. And there's been many before me when I was a youth. And Greta has risen up as a voice among thousands of youth. And that is so powerful. Um, For me, I think the longevity of the speech really is about the power of the voice of youth and the need and the response of older generations to that voice. We need young people to speak truth to power. No one else has as much at stake and is as innocent as our young people. They are inheriting a world that has been managed and stewarded by us, by older generations. And we, as a culture, have forgotten our most sacred duty, which is to ensure that the world that we inherit is left to our children um, in, a, in a healthy state. So I think that that's what the, the story of the Rio speech for me really, really is about. It's about the power and the need for the voice of youth. And it's been just such an emotional and encouraging and sad thing for me to see today's youth well, I think pick that message up. It's just incredibly heart-wrenching and inspiring. I think, Sev, though, that there's something more profound going on because I agree with everything you said. But at the same time, just before the Earth Summit, 
the World Scientist Warning to Humanity was was released, and that was by scientific elders. It included over half of all Nobel Prize winners, and it said it, this at the beginning, human beings in the natural world are on a collision course. Human activities inflict harsh and often irreversible damage on the environment on critical resources, and then went through and described where the collision was taking place and what has to has to be done. So that warning, you know, there was the elders, and then you reinforced that as a child. We talk about on our program a lot about the the impact of activism um, on, on trying to combat climate change because we try to talk about solutions. But I wonder, both of you, what you think has changed in those 30 years since Severn made that plea? My own feeling is that the Corporations have gotten much smarter. The fossil fuel industry, we now know for sure, knew by 1965 that burning fossil fuels was warming the planet. Indeed, Frank Eichard, who was president of the American Petroleum Institute, said in 1965, by the year 2000, if we don't do something, burning fossil fuels could well have triggered global warming that would be beyond our ability to adapt. Rather than say, hey, let's... Let's get on to an energy uh, source that's not as bad for the environment. They chose to adopt the techniques of the tobacco industry and say, no, 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 it's not true. You know, the scientists, they're, they're wrong. This is natural or whatever. And it worked. I mean, they kept their profit line going all steadily through this time. I don't know, Sev, what you feel about it. But. Yeah, certainly. I mean, when you look back at the spirit the international leadership at Rio and the the agreements, the conventions that came out of that Earth Summit, I mean, people were there. Everybody was calling themselves an environmentalist. Um, we have the Convention on Biodiversity. We have the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which we're you know still using um, at the COP meetings that happen annually. So we had these frameworks that came out. And these were legally binding documents. The world signed on. And I, I think you're right. I think the rise of corporate power. I mean, just the incredible, you know, really doubling down of this idea that profit and a growth, economic growth, is actually the main goal of society. And that should be what governments actually support in order for humans to move forward. And the, so it, what it means is that the balance of power in the world sh- has shifted and governments, you know, who are supposed to be looking out for the best interests of their people have to, you know, respond and negotiate on this economic scale that really values, you know, profit. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Canada has, in fact, signed eight formal uh, agreements internationally to cap or stabilize and then reduce our emissions. We've signed eight international agreements. We have never met a single one. So I was astounded to, uh, to get a, an article in the New York Times uh, a week ago in which it was documenting the incredible record of Donald Trump as president and all of the environmental uh, laws that he just undercut. And you see that the United States is in a terrible mess as a result. But the bottom line in the article blew me away. It said the U.S. is at rock bottom now among the industrialized world, except for one country, Canada. 
Well, there you go. Well, you, the, the, uh, obviously, neither of you has given up the fight in the past 30 years. You can't. But you, at this stage in your career, you, you, I mean, you've always spoken your mind, but you really have become an advocate for the fight against climate change. And, and we know there are other scientists out there who struggle with what they should be doing in, when they do not just when they do the science, and then they maybe feel like nothing enough is changing. So what what advice would you give? To scientists out there. Well, I think that the scientific community itself has got to say this is the is such a slap in the face of the community itself. Why do we have scientists and, and support them? It's to be able to to monitor the state of the planet is one thing, and and give us advice on what we sh- where we should be going. But to to throw out all of the work of of climatologists now. Uh, is is an, an affront to the scientific community, I think. You are listening to What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch, and my guests are David Suzuki and Severn Cullis Suzuki. Severn, you've, you've gone through also through your own different phases in, in your career, and you now have your, your father's foundation. Um, it's a, been a big change for you. You've gone from living in the in Haida Gwaii on the islands, relatively remote, to now traversing the country. What prompted you to make that change? You know, we're starting talking about uh, 30 years ago when I started, uh, I guess, my public speaking career, speaking uh, in Rio. And so I started advocacy at that age and continued throughout, you know, my teenage years. And then um, throughout my 20s, I got a degree in biology, ecology and evolutionary biology at Yale University. And then I, after that, pursued a master's in ethnoecology. So I started migrating over um, from the sciences towards um, now where I'm pursuing an, a, a PhD in anthropology. And this really was influenced by my growing up. I had this heavy influence, obviously, from the scientists in my family. And, and my father is not the only scientist in my, my family. But I also had this very strong influence from First Nations, and we'd been very lucky to spend a lot of time in the villages and communities on the West Coast and and elsewhere in Canada, and really welcomed and taught a lot of Indigenous teachings. And I really owe a lot to um, my Haida aunties and aunties in Bella Bella and um, also in Alert Bay. I mean, people who really shared knowledge with me, and I really feel that I experienced a left and right eye of information and learning. And it's not just rooted in science. It's also rooted in a different way of knowing. Part of the chance for survival for humanity lies in Indigenous people in the, in the world. And they're also connected to a way of living that is an alternative. They're also connected to a way of life that is more in balance. And we desperately need that perspective. And is that what, how you're putting your own stamp on the foundation now? I have been at the foundation. So I lived on Haida Gwaii for the past uh, 15 years. I married a Haida man, and um, we built our family together. We're very committed to a traditional, as traditional um, as possible way of life and learning the Haida language, teaching our children, gathering food from, from Haida Gwaii, and just living very closely. Um, and I remember a couple years ago, you know, it was summertime, it was beautiful out, but it was when there were huge fires in California and there were fires in Alaska and the Yukon and the air was smoky. 
And I just had this kind of terrible feeling in my stomach that, you know, wow, I've been living my wonderful life and and learning so much. And of course, there's lots of challenges there too. Um, But the world is on fire and it's affecting everywhere on earth, even remote, you know, beautiful Haida Gwaii. And I just had this feeling of I have to get back in the fight. So uh, not too long after that, um, we received news that the then CEO of the DSF, the David Suzuki Foundation, um, was uh, was leaving the organization. And it really was a, a chance for me to stare it at the face and say, stare it in the face and say, you know, am I going to step up? Am I going to step up and see what I can do shoulder to shoulder with a whole group of humans committed to change in an organ in a nonprofit? David, I'm wondering how you see Severn's leadership as different from yours. Well, it was uh, I was surprised when uh, actually Miles Richardson, who's uh, a Haida and a member, well, one of the founding members of uh, our foundation, said, Sev, Sev is the one. You know, this <laughs> suddenly came up and I was shocked and Tara and I immediately said, look, you've, the board has got to select uh, the, the new person, not, uh, we can't be involved in that. And to my surprise but delight, uh, they said Sev was overwhelmingly uh, ideal for the position. I think what I've learned from uh, the our involvement, long involvement with uh, with Indigenous people, and certainly watching Sev and her flourishing in in Haida Gwaii, the the real challenge we face is that most of the world now lives under uh, a way of seeing our place on the planet that is ultimately destructive. And that is that we sense, we think that we live in a pyramid with, where humans are at the top and everything underneath in the pyramid is for us. The whole world, everything revolves around us. And we've created our legal systems, our economic systems, our political systems are all built on that assumption. Whereas what indigenous people tell you over and over again is, we are just a very small strand in a complex web of relationships. And our interconnection with everything means that we not only are grateful for what we receive from that web, but that we have responsibilities. And it's that sense of uh, that, that we're just a part of this complex and that that be existing brings responsibilities that is really missing from the way we're trying to to deal with the environmental issues and and so i think the uh the indigenous perspective is really a change in the very way that we see our place on the planet and that's going to be very very difficult yeah well my next question was going to be that we we started off this conversation talking about things that happened 30 years ago and I, i'm wondering if you can give me your vision for what things will be like 30 years from now. Uh, Severin, why don't you start us off? Um, Well, you asked me, you know, what my contribution to the DSF will be. And, you know, part of it is coming back to our roots. I do remember and think about my parents who started the organization 32 years ago and, and what their spirit was when they started the foundation. And it was very much um, rooted in supporting Indigenous nations who were fighting to protect their lands and resources. All of the environmental battles that I remember our family was involved in were following the lead of Indigenous people in place. So very much the spirit of environmentalism that my parents had back then and throughout their, you know, their activism has been as settlers working as allies towards Indigenous 
nationhood, governance, and protection of their lands. Um, and the other piece is racial equity. You know, David Suzuki is, is a racialized Canadian. He was interned during the Second World War. He was involved in the civil rights movement in the States. Um, he's always been involved in seeking seeking justice. And this is so important for the environmental movement today. So we have to tap into something greater. And there is a spirit of justice seeking right now that is happening that I believe is partially unlocked by the pandemic, where we cannot ignore these truths, these truths of injustice, these these truths within us all that have been invisible. Am I hearing that you're optimistic uh, uh, for the next 30 years then? I'm not I'm not optimistic, but I am empowered. And I'm in I I'm inspired to to take action, and there's so much opportunity in that right now. David, what about you? Well, look, uh, I have a bleak uh, idea because I've been involved in the game so long and seen all of the promises. And, uh, you know, in 1988, to me, that was the height of uh, the environmental movement when a guy ran for president of the United States and said, you vote for me, I will be an environmental president. That was oil man George H.W. Bush. He had to say it. Uh, Margaret Thatcher in 88 was filmed picking up litter in uh, in London and turned to camera and said, I'm a greenie too. Uh, we re-elected Brian Mulroney and uh, he appointed his brightest star to be the Minister of the Environment. I'll bet you don't know who it was. Tom McMillan. No, no, uh, Lucien Bouchard. Oh, okay. And I invented, <laughs> I interviewed Lucien a few months after he was there and I said, well, what have you learned is the most important environmental issue? And right away, he said, global warming. That was impressive. So I said, well, how bad is it? And he said, it threatens the survival of our species. We have to act now. Then he quit a few, uh, I don't know, a while later to look for Quebec sovereignty. I guess that's more important than survival of our species. I don't know. But, I mean, uh, we've had our moments, but it's what what is the bottom line? We haven't done anything. And so... I want to just interject there, though. I think that right now is a very interesting moment. And I keep on talking about the pandemic. But, you know, if you had told me three years ago that the governments of the world would work across party lines, that they would move billions, that they would pay attention to science, that uh, individuals would completely change their ways of life, I would not have believed you and all to address an existential crisis. And we just did it. <laughs> I mean, it's not like life's back to normal, but we navigated an existential crisis and governments actually stepped up and they did what they had to do and they actually responded on an emergency level. So we've just seen what the adequate, what an appropriate emergency yeah. response look like. And so now when we say, we, we see governments are like, yeah, we're in a crisis, you know, we're in a climate emergency, you know, we can call them on it. We just saw what an appropriate crisis response looks like, and we can do it. So cats out of the bag, we can do it. And now we just released a report that was three years in the in the making with the University of Victoria called Clean Power Pathways that shows without any nuclear, without any me more mega dams, without carbon capture and whatever, with the technology now available, we could have a completely electrified grid with clean, renewable, reliable, 
affordable electricity by 2035. Let's see whether our government's serious about this then. Let's see what they do. And we've given them the outline it can be done, but let's see whether we can escape the record that we've had so far. All right. The challenge has been issued. You bet. <laughs> and I hope on this show, Laura, that you, you have these so-called leaders to come here and tell us what they say. You know, I've, I've said to, to Stephen Guibault, I said this to Wilkinson when he was the Minister of the Environment, you're our guy. Look, you've got to be there and tell us the truth. Tell us what it is. Environmentalists have been working on what do we do when we get onto a path towards sustainability. It's hard work, but now we've got the blueprint. Uh, the question is, are these guys serious about climate? All right, two incredibly powerful and uh, persistent voices on confronting the climate crisis. Severin Kula Suzuki, David Suzuki, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And uh, this is a great program, Laura. I ho hope you expand it into. <laughs> thank you, Laura. Severin, thank you so much. Bye-bye. I'm producer Molly Siegel. On Cape Cod, Massachusetts, fishermen are used to adapting to the weather, to the fish stocks, to boom and bust. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, changes are hard on everybody and they're hard on communities as well. And so Atlantic Cod presents, you know, sort of the cultural iconic challenges for New England. But off the shore, a bigger shift is at play. This part of the Atlantic, the Northwest Atlantic, is changing very rapidly, and there are sort of three factors. Um, one is just the, you know, the ocean is warming. Um, the second is the location of the Gulf Stream, which is the warm current coming up from the tropics, is pushing further north. Um, so that's pushing warm water into areas that were once cold. Um, and then the third one is the, 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 the circulation, the northern circulation is decreasing. So you've got less cold water coming into the region. So we see this just really rapid warming here in the northeast. The Cape's namesake, cod, overfished for years. Now can it make a comeback in warming water? I'm not here to say that I'm the victim of climate change, but I think we've put ourselves in a bad position with poor fisheries management and now stocks that are severely depressed trying to come back in, a, in an arena where basically the goalposts have moved and the whole field is different. You know, the, it's warmer, the, the makeup of forage species is different. It's a question mark whether these stocks can actually return. Join me on the shores of the Atlantic coast as I learn about how fish are moving as the climate changes and the ways in which fishermen are adapting. I'm looking forward to hearing that, but that is it for us this week. If you missed any of the program, head over to CBC Listen. You can also catch up on previous episodes. Associate producer Danielle Piper and producer Rachel Sanders produced this week's show. What on Earth also includes our producer Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson is our engineer, and our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.